Chapter 14 Miami Nice During the time that I was suffering from the loss of my band, I received a call from my drug-addicted girlfriend in Miami who needed help in cleaning up her addiction. I invited her to come live with me in Philly. She became my roommate. Sandy and I gave new meaning to the art of flirting. I honestly don't know which one of us was more affluent in the skill. Eventually, after my loss of the music and she lost most of the need for drugs, all that was left between us was the need for sex. We met many men, some we'd share, too short for me, too rugged for her. We'd swap the men and they'd never complain. It was like being a twin. Why should they complain? They'd get the best of two women's worlds. She and I would compare notes at the end of an evening, especially if we'd each been with the same man at a different time previously. It was sheer enjoyment to see each other's take on sexual preferences after being with that same man. Did you like the way he put his mouth on you there? You did? <laughs> About a year later, she and I decided it was time to confront our Miami pasts and take a vacation. Two women with one goal. Let's go back and see if we can prove that our new lives were working. We'll never let a man own, manipulate, divert, or convert us with either sex or drugs again. Instead, we will be the controlling partners. We will manipulate and choose who we'd want to see and for how long, and what we might want from that man. We were certainly up for the task at hand. What a reason to go back home. We already had the men picked out we'd hit on first. We knew where all the bodies were, and we were stronger now. We didn't need them or their drugs. We just wanted affirmation. We walked into a local travel agency to book our trip. Who would have thought that this, what we might have labeled our cleanse our souls trip, would turn into two trips, one to prove a point and one that would change my life. Chapter 15. That's the fact, Jack. It's a bit dimly lit inside the travel agency. And just coming from the gym, I was wearing lycra tights, short shorts, and a skimpy t-shirt. And my girlfriend Sandy was dressed much the same. We were discussing prices with the agent when the front door opened and two men walked in with obvious intent to sell something to the agent. They moved closer as we could hardly see them, but I remember thinking... He sort of looked like my dad. I really can't explain it. I just felt it. I said to her under my breath, Look, the tall guy. I'm going to marry him. Isn't it funny that I can remember this feeling so clearly now, but after being with that man for 23 years, I couldn't bring that feeling to life if I tried. When I blurted that out to her, she burst out laughing. I ignored her and stood up, not knowing what I was about to do, just knowing that I was about to do something. I introduced myself to him. I'm Dora. Who are you, and do you own your own company? He said, My name is Jack, and yes, I do. It excited me, which was crazy, more like insane. But then I asked if he was looking for someone to work for him. I remember his look and the look that said, are you fucking kidding me? I'd fuck you in a heartbeat, and of course I'm looking for help. Your help. As a result of the look, I asked for his card as my girlfriend looked at me with wonderment. I knew I was going to marry this man. 
I was thinking about the fact that I was choosing him, a total stranger named Jack, with nothing in common except a charge that passed through the room, traveling from him to the agent to me with the intent of marriage and understandably till death would do us part. Within less than a day, I set up an interview with him. I wore the shortest black dress I had, black boots, and nothing underneath. Wow. That explains a lot. I now know it's a moment I've continued to recreate for the rest of my adult life. It was my formula for the control of men, sexually, almost like a recipe for sex. Add one woman, add one guy, wear a tight dress, casually cross and uncross legs, stir the emotion in the pot, then tease and make him crazy. Dinner is served. I crossed and uncrossed my legs while sitting in front of him. Sharon Stone could have taken lessons from me. I watched his eyes. I felt the power. I made him hunger for me. He asked if I'd come back for a second interview. Of course he did, because I willed it so. We shook hands. I gave my best swagger as I left, knowing he was watching, watching wondering what was underneath my dress. As I'm writing, I'm seeing so many things crystal clear that have avoided me for so long, clear as glass. How are we so sure of where we want our life to wind up at any given time? So positive, almost throwing not just caution, but logic to the wind. For many years, music and singing were my reasons for living. They offered me expression, exhibitionism, escape, and sex that naturally intertwines between songs and business, almost having its own rhythm and hope of success. How can something this powerful be here one day and then be replaced by something else the next, neither being tangible or something you could hold in your hand and neither being transparent. In fact, all may be a lighter shade of pale. It's almost with a feeling of whiplash as I look back and see how traitorous I was, trading my life filled with notes and harmony for a man. Yes, being in the music business can throw you off key from time to time but a significant other can throw your whole life into a tailspin. And yet, when I said those words to my girlfriend and she saw the look of seriousness on my face, at least two people in that travel agency felt the world tilt. I went back for the second interview and got up the courage to ask Jack if he was married. He wasn't which encouraged me to be a bit more brazen than I'd ever been in my life with regard to being aggressive in a new relationship. I asked him if he'd like to go out for a drink. The silence was so thick, I found myself holding my breath, literally, while waiting for an answer from this man. I saw my mom shaking her head at me, my girlfriend holding her head in her hands, my dad smiling, and then he answered. As long as it's within the next two weeks. Why two weeks? Uh, I'm getting married. 
Lots of thoughts bounced around in my head back then while sitting in that chair, still crossing and uncrossing my legs, probably more out of nervousness now that I think back, and even right now I'm questioning his judgment as to why he would offer me that date. Why would he need to go out with someone other than his fiance if he's in love and getting married in two weeks? For that reason alone, I stood up, shook his hand, and wished him luck. If he could do it to her, he could certainly do it to me. No, thank you. Months went by, and then he called. He said he still had a position open and wondered if I was interested. <laughs> I laughed, knowing the real intent of the call, and asked him if he'd gotten married. He had. And after talking for just a few minutes, I was able to tell that he was unhappy with that decision. The fact that he talked with me so openly about his failing marriage and that I was willing to listen was the start of our future phone friendship. This friendship lasted a few more months, and then we decided to meet. That meeting turned into him divorcing his wife just a few months later and moving in with me. Within two years, we were married. And I could finally gloat that I'd been correct in that travel agency after all. Chapter 16 Radio Gaga. One, two, skip a few, 99, 100. That's what the next 11 years felt like. He taught me how to build businesses, and my entrepreneurial skills blossomed. While still with my band at that time, to Jack's credit, he encouraged me to keep singing with the band. In fact, he was part of the plot that began what was soon to become my media career. Our band, Syzygy, was still trying desperately to get a record deal and thought if we could somehow grab airplay, maybe we'd catch the attention of a major label if they'd hear it, thus sign us to a recording contract. Jack had been on the air years and years earlier out of college and was familiar with the radio business and suggested a plan. The plan was for him to write me a resume that would show I'd been on the air before, including programming and production skills, none of which were true, of course. Once again, I'd be saying yes to something I knew nothing about, but learned in a hurry. I had a friend in the city who owned a studio and was currently on the air. He helped me make an audition tape. It was to sound like it was me on the air at a local radio station that had been created on my fake resume. The idea was if I was hired as a jock, I could sneak our record in slowly and hopefully gain the airplay. Never having been in the industry myself, how would I know that people just don't do that? You can't just sneak our record in. Shouldn't he have known this, though? He'd been in the industry years prior. How could he set me up for a potentially huge fall? Once again, I believed blindly in men. My dad, my husband, and noticeably other men as well. Why? Just because. I didn't seem to need a reason to believe in a man, and incredibly, I still don't. I follow them like one of those three blind mice, blindly. This was burned into my brain from early years watching my father's brilliance and my mother's supposed failures. I was taught that men are God's gifts, no matter the consequence. It was a large rock station in Philly. I walked in as a guy was walking out in a huff. Without having an appointment, I asked the receptionist if I could speak with the program director. What's frightening is I wasn't even nervous because I was on a mission. 
a mission that included my entire band, my husband, and myself. Strangely enough, he met with me, looked at my resume, listened to my tape, and hired me on the spot. Apparently, the guy who'd just walked out in a huff was someone that had just been fired, and I became his immediate replacement. The program director never checked my references, ever. Mission accomplished. Chapter 16 Radio Gaga. One, two, skip a few, 99, 100. That's what the next 11 years felt like. He taught me how to build businesses, and my entrepreneurial skills blossomed. While still with my band at that time, to Jack's credit, he encouraged me to keep singing with the band. In fact, he was part of the plot that began what was soon to become my media career. Our band, Syzygy, was still trying desperately to get a record deal and thought if we could somehow grab airplay, maybe we'd catch the attention of a major label if they'd hear it, thus sign us to a recording contract. Jack had been on the air years and years earlier out of college and was familiar with the radio business and suggested a plan. The plan was for him to write me a resume that would show I'd been on the air before, including programming and production skills, none of which were true, of course. Once again, I'd be saying yes to something I knew nothing about, but learned in a hurry. I had a friend in the city who owned a studio and was currently on the air. He helped me make an audition tape. It was to sound like it was me on the air at a local radio station that had been created on my fake resume. The idea was if I was hired as a jock, I could sneak our record in slowly and hopefully gain the airplay. Never having been in the industry myself, how would I know that people just don't do that? You can't just sneak our record in. Shouldn't he have known this, though? He'd been in the industry years prior. How could he set me up for a potentially huge fall? Once again, I believed blindly in men. My dad, my husband, and noticeably other men as well. Why? Just because. I didn't seem to need a reason to believe in a man, and incredibly, I still don't. I follow them like one of those three blind mice, blindly. This was burned into my brain from early years watching my father's brilliance and my mother's supposed failures. I was taught that men are God's gifts, no matter the consequence. It was a large rock station in Philly. I walked in as a guy was walking out in a huff. Without having an appointment, I asked the receptionist if I could speak with the program director. What's frightening is I wasn't even nervous because I was on a mission a mission that included my entire band, my husband, and myself. Strangely enough, he met with me, looked at my resume, listened to my tape, and hired me on the spot. Apparently, the guy who'd just walked out in a huff was someone that had just been fired, and I became his immediate replacement. The program director never checked my references, ever. Mission accomplished. Chapter 17. Wedding Nightmare Due to my innocence and blind faith in my husband, my media career began, and yes, six months later, I handed over Syzygy's record to the music director at the radio station, and although he liked it and it played steadily for months, no record deal came of it, but my first child did. 
My priorities shifted to my new husband, Jack, and our new child, Demi, the first of five. I guess the question that burns through my mind as I remember sitting last night in my lingerie and rocking in my squeaky chair, plucking at memories and the keyboard is, how did my dream man not sustain those dreams? Maybe I expected too much to begin with. My standard's too high. Then again, I wasn't looking for him in the first place, so how can that be? He'd had every opportunity in the world to hold on to me, to keep me happy, because he was an unexpected present that lit me up from the moment I took the ribbons off. I've always said a present for no reason is such a joy. Together, we built so many things. Three businesses, five kids, at least three pets, Five, ten, fifteen years of living in a blur between dance classes, competitions, soccer games, baseball, basketball, wrestling, school, and all the businesses we'd made successful. Who could ask for anything more? I can, because I wanted more. I was like a sponge in need of water, thirsty all the time, thirsty for emotional and sexual passion. Even though life was chaotic, and filled with arms reaching up to offer hugs or requests to be picked up and held or wrapped around my neck, they were never from the arms of my husband. I really started to second-guess my decision to marry him on the first night of our honeymoon, truth be told. I'd asked, hinted, almost begged that we get married, and he held me off for three years, until by the grace of God, I got pregnant. I was four months pregnant while on our honeymoon, emotional due to hormones screaming and battling inside my body when we began a conversation about our newly formed successful candy business that we'd built together from scratch. I felt that he was overextending his rights of partnership by saying, once the baby's here, you'll stay home and I'll run the business. This was a different generation. How did I not know that he didn't know that? This was not old school like my mom's world. She stayed home, took care of us when we were little, etc. Not exactly like leave it to beaver, but the apron and pearls that June Cleaver may have worn, while in my world, would easily be exchanged for a thong and a different kind of pearl necklace. It was very upsetting to feel like I'd won the battle but lost the war. After trying to explain to him that I could easily do both, after trying to explain to him that I could easily do both became very frustrating and I noticed fell upon deaf ears to the point of tears and eventually sobbing on my part, I walked out to the balcony trying to calm myself. Yet he never once came out to console me. I was hoping he'd say, It's okay. We'll make it work, Dora. Silly when I look back because it was a sign for sure. I wasn't looking for an apology. I never am. I just wanted comfort that never came. I watched him lay down on the bed from outside the sliding glass doors while I stood crying and pictured my mom. Could this possibly be genetic? How did I allow myself to be in exactly the same position that she'd been in on her honeymoon? Yes, he did resemble my dad when I met him, and I thought it was a plus, but... He ignored me. He turned on the TV and never looked at me as my tears ran quietly down my face. I stood outside in my negligee that my mom had bought for me. She'd said, Dora, 
You've married a wonderful man, and I thank God every day that you won't go through what I did. This nightgown will make him appreciate you even more on your special night. Little did we know how wrong we were. I went back inside feeling defeated. He never looked at me and said nothing. It was my first hint of how undemonstrative and unresponsive he would be. The honeymoon was over before the honeymoon began. My marriage was over. It just took me another 20 years to admit to it. The buildings whiz by as I get closer to the airport. So many things are so much more clear with each mile we travel. All the success with each business we built, I attributed to his entrepreneurial skills, his knowledge, his brilliance. But never once did I give myself credit and understand until now, with each business we built, I was the mouthpiece. I was the customer service base. I endeared my husband to each customer. Sally, you're going to love him. He'll treat you like gold, and he's bringing you a gift. Let me know if he does anything to upset you. I'll take care of him when he gets home. I covered for him. He would not have been as successful without me. This thought hurts me, because even to this day, I want him on that pedestal that I believed he deserved to be on. I built him up so far into the atmosphere, he should have surely had nosebleeds. And most definitely, he could never have measured up to the man I'd been comparing him to, the man who was never, ever wrong, my dad. I'm so upset. Chapter 18. My Husband, My Father Why do we see things in hindsight that hurt the ones we love? It almost makes me hate my dad. If he could only have allowed me to see his imperfections instead of always being right and smart and having the answers, I wouldn't have put my husband in that league. My husband felt it and knew it and just decided to fake it as long as he could. Why don't I just beat myself up a little bit more? Does it ever end? Will I ever let the other participant own up to their own mistakes without feeling the weight of that responsibility? Frighteningly, I realize where I thought my husband was so much like my dad, in fact, there was no resemblance between them at all. Ever. I want to yell and scream, I've done it! I finally understand that it's partly my fault, but now I don't know if I'm right or wrong for leaving him behind to fend for himself, but either way, I'm leaving and there's no turning back. Chapter 19. Science Fiction I pretty much feel like I've got a couple screws loose, and not the kind that I gave away last night. Then again, lately, I don't give anything away. I found something I owned that had value. I'm capitalizing on that fact, and I have no misgivings about it. Why should I? It's empowering, righteous, practical, and sensual. Man... I got it going on. If I'd been 20 years younger, I wouldn't have been smart enough to figure this out. But now that I'm older and still look good, I feel like no one can have the upper hand with me right now. I hold the cards, period. Unless I slip up and miss a sign, there's nothing to stop me from success. Science and great sex. What a combination. 
The only thing I worry about constantly is that my kids will find out just how I'm protecting them. And then they'll never forgive me. How do you explain to your offspring that you love them so much that you'd give your life for them, that you'd do anything to support them, and that you'd make yourself like it? You can't. After much thought, here's the Dora Manifesto. Any woman that can't admit to loving great sex is a woman a man should steer clear of. Tell the truth, and you'll get what you want. Looking up into a man's face, whether standing beside him, laying under him, watching him behind her in a mirror, seeing what he's really feeling, he'll own a piece of her for life. If he's forthcoming enough, trust will be understood. Period. If he's the right man... I'll let a little piece of me fall in love because I know he'll feel it when I do. It's like a pea that's snapped. Snap! You're in. It'll keep him secure, wanting, build his confidence based on truth, and at the same time make him more appealing to me. If all of the above are met, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the perfect future. It only means it's got the potential to meet with perfect expectations of what I want in my life. Let him step up and try. It's a huge step. But if he's the right man, the step won't feel as wide. Chapter 20. Old Soul Syndrome I was told as a teen by my gynecologist that I couldn't get pregnant, so this first pregnancy to me was a blessing. No, wait. This wasn't the first pregnancy. My first pregnancy ended in abortion with Joe, my guitarist boyfriend. So much for the accuracy of my gynecologist. It was probably the real reason he and I split up. It's rushing at me again. This thing called the truth. I had to go to Joe's sister for help because he couldn't deal with it. He didn't want the child and was extremely religious, so he couldn't encourage a termination of pregnancy either. She took me in, same family, same religion, just of a female mindset that loved me, maybe more than he did. She helped me to find the right abortionist and helped me to deal with having it done. She let me stay with her, and then she let me heal. I was heartbroken, knowing that after all of these years of thinking I couldn't have a child, that maybe God was playing tricks on me, and that just maybe he'd only allow me this one. It took a lot for both he and I to get past this. Years later, I held my own daughter's hand as she went through the same procedure. With the miracle child that I thought she was, I tried to convince her at the age of 17 to keep the baby because I knew I'd never gotten over losing that first one. I didn't want her to have it sneak up behind her and constantly tap her on the shoulder saying, Remember me? <sighs> Even more years later, the fact that five more kids followed was truly a blessing. I wanted more children because they were the cure for the lack of passion in our marriage, something to nurture, grow, and stroke, unlike what was happening between my husband and myself. I wanted the fourth child, but my husband didn't, and the fifth one he absolutely refused. I felt 
If we didn't continue with growing children, I'd be forced to walk away with the three we already had. I wouldn't be able to fake the happy marriage any longer. We ended up going to therapy to negotiate the pregnancy. The therapist said to him, "You seem to have a pattern of always opposing what your wife asks for and then giving in in the end. Why do you make her work so hard for something you know she wants, yet you know you'll wind up doing anyway?" It was a very strong statement, a true pattern since before we'd married. Whether it had to do with having a child, inviting friends over, or what to see in a movie, I always had to work for what I wanted. That pattern finally explained the unexplainable anxiety attacks that I'd had since I'd met him early on. For three years, he made me wait to do what was inevitable. For instance, marriage. So having learned that I had to wait for everything and wanting to avoid the time lost in waiting, I lied about my birth control and became pregnant with my fourth child. To him, it was a miracle, so I was never to blame. To me, if I hadn't had her, I was one step closer to leaving him. It became so convoluted that I already had one foot out the door. I learned that we can love someone. But there's a big difference between loving and being in love. The thought of kid five brought us back to the therapist for the same conversation, but this time I really had battles inside of my head with multiple weapons because, unlike him, I knew our marriage was on shaky ground, and I thought having child five might fix it, like inferior glue to a failing bond. It would keep me adhered inside the walls of marriage. Busy and content, but sexually frustrated. I'd once told my husband that I didn't like the way he kissed me, so he stopped kissing me altogether. He just stopped. He hadn't kissed me in fifteen years, and he never hugged me either. I felt that alone was grounds for divorce because it was my favorite part of lovemaking. Sex had become routine, work. And completely unfulfilling, with my history and how sex had always been the nucleus of life for me, I felt like I was shriveling up inside. I never had the desire to flirt with my husband, and I never noticed when men would look at me with any resemblance of lust in their eyes. I had trouble looking at him, and I was in fear every night when we'd get into bed that he'd be looking for what he called sex. Even with all we had, I felt nothing towards him romantically or passionately by then. I think that's what happens from lack of touch. The more you are not touched, stroked, kissed, the more armor you build around yourself for protection's sake. I was afraid that I'd turned into exactly what my dad had described his sex life with my mom to be—just laying there. Then there were my mom's stories of dad's lack of lust. To me, that's a marriage death sentence and way too predictable. When it came to sex, I would look at it like a spontaneous journey. I'd often said to him, "Don't you ever just want to get in the car, put it in drive, with no destination in mind, and just go?" He'd always reply the same way, "Go where?" As a result of his rigidness. My sex drive got in the car and drove off without him, even though the rest of me stayed behind as the mom raising the kids. 
By the time the fourth and fifth child arrived, I was numb. I needed them, as I'd explained, but I think I now know it was for the wrong reasons. Where I thought having them would save my marriage, I should have just walked away intact while still owning a piece of myself. Instead, my mind, my body, my soul were spread thin, maybe way too thin to have any semblance of thought processing left. After not being hugged, stroked, kissed, or squeezed for 15 years, I was beat up. So beat up. The Saga of Dora continues next Thursday, March 23rd. Can you honestly tell me that you're not relating? Have you not felt anything that she's gone through yourself? If you don't feel her now, let's wait till next week and see. It's Robin Marshall, Sugar Mom. Westwood One Podcast Production.